Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. invited him they told him look it's it's just a meeting it's not a big deal you don't need to worry about it you'll be safe so Jan went to this meeting to find out that it was anything but safe history has referred to it as the council of Constance, and he was promised it would just be a regular meeting when instead he was immediately thrown into prison for six months he was given a mock trial and they ordered him to recant which means that the things that you've said, the things that you've taught, the things that you've written about, take it back. Tell everybody you didn't mean what you said or you don't believe that anymore. And he refused to do that. And so then they led him past a burning pile of his books and they chained him to the stake. The whole time he was praying for those that were doing this to him. And as they chained him up like a dog, this is what he said. My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this one. And for my sake... So why should I be ashamed of this rusty chain? This was July of 1415, about 600 years ago. And they told him once more, they said, look, recant. Tell everybody you don't believe what you said you believed. And he refused and he said this, what I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. And he did. And that day, he died. His name was Jan Hus or Hus. That's Czech, in the Czech language, if you take his last name, Hus, it's actually the same word for goose. And so that's significant as you hear this story. Who was, who was Jan Hus? He was a priest. He was a figure of national reform in Bohemia, what we now know as the Czech Republic. He lived in a time when immorality infected the priesthood of the Catholic Church. Now, he, he was a priest, and he saw this going on. So he began to preach these sermons against the rampant iniquity in the clergy until the other clergy got so fed up with him that they reported him to the archbishop. The archbishop said, look, who's, you've got to stop doing this, and they banned him from preaching. As he read the scripture, he realized that the popes were using their authority in in inappropriate ways. There were abuses of power. And so he concluded that the papal authority, the popes at that time, was not the ultimate authority, but that the ultimate authority was the word of God. His views on scripture and, and ultimately the way he believed was strongly influenced by another reformer, someone whose works had been condemned as well, named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe staunchly argued against indulgences, advocated that that everyone should be able to share in all of the communion service, and he preached in the common language. This was important. Who did the same thing? See, the mass at that time in the Catholic Church was to be delivered in Latin, kind of the language of the church, but the people who would come to the services didn't speak Latin, so they didn't know what was going on. So when Hus would preach, he would preach in the Czech language, and they didn't like this, and so they condemned him to death, like his books to be burned at the stake. And when he knew that he was condemned, this is the statement he made. Listen to this. He said, you may roast the goose. What did his last name, Hoos, mean? It meant, he said, you may roast the goose, 
But a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. I tell you this story because this Tuesday, October 31st, will mark the 500-year anniversary of the launch of the beginning of what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. It was an incredibly significant time, not just in the history of the church, but in modern history. And I want to tell you in just a moment why all of this is so important. But today, we're going to take a good look at a segment of church history. And as soon as I use that word history, some of you said, oh, no. (laughs) Came here to hear about the Bible. I don't like a history. You had flashbacks to junior high and high school. Some of you are starting to have little tremors and stuff. You're just, you're nervous. You're, you're already falling asleep on me as soon as I said history, except a few of you. A few of you are like, is there going to be a test? Is there a test on this? Like you're already stressed out. Look, we're going we're gonna to take some time and talk about history today. Let me tell you why. Earlier this week, I was over at my mom's house, and we were looking for some papers and some old files that she had. And as we went through, we found this envelope that had a a bunch of old pictures, some of which I'd never seen before, that my aunt had given to my mom, and they ended up in this file. Some of these pictures, they're, they're, they're treasures to our family. Some of them go back. You can see where they were printed on the past, uh, on the, on the back. They go all the way back to when our family lived in Europe. Let me show you a couple of these, because I think it's just, it's kind of significant to what we're talking about today. This would be the Richards family here. Um, the, the guy in the middle, the little boy in the middle, that would have been my mom's dad. And they would have come, his parents would have come from the nation of Wales. And when they did, as they were coming on the ship, the little girl on the right, the oldest child, Esther, she was actually born on the ship somewhere in the Atlantic between Wales and on their way to the United States. This, this next picture would be, if you look here, uh, we'll look at the next one. Um, that little baby, that's my mom. Wasn't she cute? <laughs> Cuteness just runs in our family, doesn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's awesome. She's being held by her mom. And those are my aunts, my Aunt Eleanor and my Aunt Ruth. Um, they, they lived in uh, rural northeastern Ohio. My grandfather, who I, I never met, my grandfather or my grandmother, uh, was a farmer and a bus driver. And the Great Depression almost did him in. My grandmother came from um, a pretty unique heritage. This next picture would be her mother, my great-grandma Winsper. She grew up in Britain and uh, in England. One day as a teen, she was taking her father his lunch when he was at work. As she was walking, she walked along a canal, and for whatever reason, she fell in the canal. It was cold. When she did, she, she caught a cold in her eyes, like the cold in her head, like settled in her eyes, and to treat this cold... They put leeches on her eyes. Anybody ready for lunch? They, they, this is a treatment at the time, right? They thought that would do so. They put leeches on her eyes, and she went blind. She eventually married. She moved to the United States, raised her family, um, and she was known for being a great cook. One of her specialties, making pies. Can you imagine that? She's blind. Then they tell one story that one day she was cooking dinner, she was making pies, and she cut up cucumbers and she cut up apples. And when she went to make the apple pie, guess what she put in instead? (laughs) She put in the cucumbers in. Everybody laughed about it except her. She cried. It's a lot of courage, isn't it, to do that? It's my my great-grandma. This last picture is my Uncle David. When he was a young man in high school, he sensed that God was calling him um, to be a preacher, to be a pastor, to go into ministry. And um, 
his dad didn't want him to go. In fact, his dad fought him. My grandfather fought him. He said, your place is not to go away from here. Your place is to be here and work on the farm. But he could not get away from what God had called him to do. So he packed up and he moved to Minneapolis to, to go to Bible college. And after the first year, he came home and said, um, my mom told me a story that he, would, he had no money, so he would live sometimes on eating, just, he would have a loaf of bread a week. That was it. That's all he'd have to eat. And he came back and he said, I just can't do it. I can't go back to school. I just don't have the money. And some lady who he did not know, who lived in the town next to them, heard this story, just a weird chain of events. And she said, if this boy's called to go to college, I will pay for him so he can go into ministry. And she paid for the next three years of his Bible college at Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. My uncle went on to be a pastor, and he was a missionary for over 50 years. There were hundreds of people experienced life change because of him. That's, that's, if I have a list of heroes, I can tell you this. David Richards is at the top of it. And when I looked at those pictures, and I saw my family's perseverance, and, and I saw their faith, and I saw their courage, it not only made me proud of where I come from, it caused me to say, I, because of my past, I want to be like that in my future. Does that make sense? That's why history is important. And look, history can be, can be boring, but if history's boring to you, then you're just, you're just not hearing it the right way. And I want to tell you some history today about who we are as a church. Why would a guy like Jan Hus be willing to give his life? Why would he be willing to die? Well, if you go back and if you look at what was happening in the church there at the turn of the 16th century, it was an interesting time. There was really only one church. At that time, it was the Catholic Church, and ultimate authority went to the Pope. And there was a culture of corruption and immorality in the priesthood. And there were abuses of power and political control because it was actually the church who put the kings and the rulers in their place. The, the church had ultimate authority and they abused it. Even all the way down to the common person where certain people were not allowed to take communion or only portions of the communion. People who did not know Latin could not listen and understand what was happening when the priests would share in the mass. And people, get this, they did not read the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. The Bible was only known and presented to the people in the Latin language. So if you didn't know Latin, you couldn't read and understand the Bible in the language that you knew and you spoke. People were never certain of their salvation. They were constantly living on edge and being told that they had to work to earn it or deserve it. And this led to what was called the selling of indulgences. Now, let me tell you about indulgences. This was an interesting idea in the 15th, 16th century in the Catholic Church. What it was was the church believed that, that the work of Christ and the work of the saints had been so good that it stored up credits somewhere of righteousness. And so if you had sinned, and because of your sin, you wanted to try to dodge the, the punishment for your sin on earth or especially get away from having to pay for your sin in the next life, then you could somehow work to earn one of these indulgences. And the priest or the bishop might give you, actually there was a piece of paper that would be sealed and it was this indulgence that basically said you could, you could be free of that sin. Kind of a cool thing, right? Like a vending machine for forgiveness, right? That kind of thing. And here was the idea. You could work to earn it, but most of the time, you had to pay for it. And so based on kind of the scale of who you were, what prestige you had, what kind of income you made, then there was this, this scale of what it would cost you to get an indulgence. And in the early 1500s, about the time that we're talking about, there were these indulgences that were being sold in, in these areas of Germany. And in particular, it was for two reasons. 
One was there was a corrupt bishop, archbishop, and he needed to get out of some debt. So he was trying to raise some money by selling these indulgences. And the church in Rome was building St. Peter's Basilica. And so this was kind of like a capital campaign gone bad, right? And they would go around and try to sell these people these indulgences. Into that world enters a priest in that time known as Johann Tetzel. And he was going around, and he was a master at selling these indulgences. There's a picture of him. Cute little guy, isn't he? And he would go around selling these things in the early 1500s. He was a master at it. They were raising funds for this corrupt leader and to build this massive building. And Tetzel knew how to play on people's emotions. They not only had a fear of their own sins, but he was promising them the ability that they would pay for their loved ones to get out of torment in purgatory, which was a Catholic doctrine that was not derived from Scripture, but was so strong in these medieval times. Let me read to you. This is from a book that's kind of a classic history of that time, one of Tetzel's sermons. In fact, he would, he would roll into different regions. This was when he was somewhere in this, in this region of Germany, and he would go and he would preach these sermons. He would gather a crowd. He would talk to them about these indulgences, and this, he would, this is what he would say. Let me read this to you. Have you considered that you are lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world and that you do not know whether you can reach the haven not of your mortal body, but of your immortal soul. I'm changing my style of preaching. That's powerful, isn't it? What's he saying here? Look, you don't know what's gonna happen when you die. How are you gonna secure what's gonna happen to you when you die? Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution will receive complete remission of all their sins. Listen to the voices of your dear, dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. This guy's a manipulator, isn't he? Watch this. He goes on to say, do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, we bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you're not willing for so little to set us free. Some of you should try that with your kids, right? (laughs) Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember, Tetzel said, that you are able to release them for, and then he had this little jingle. This is what he was known for. This is what he would say. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. (laughs) Will you not then, for a quarter of a florin, receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of paradise. You take people who had not read the Bible, who were led to believe that what they heard from their leaders was ultimate truth, and you preach that kind of sermon, do you think he made money? Hand over fist. People were buying these indulgences all the time. There's one story that's told. It's a, it's a legend that, uh, that, that may be true, may not be true. It's a cool story that Tetzel was in town, and 
some guy walked up to him and, and he, had, uh, he had just made a haul, like he had made a bunch of cash selling these indulgences. And a guy walked up to him and said, hey, I wonder, am I able to buy one of those indulgences for a sin I haven't committed yet? He says, if I have a certain sin in mind, can I like buy this indulgence in advance? Guess what Tetzel said? You absolutely can. He says, this is the price of it, but you must act now. That's the truth. This is what he said. You know, they say, call now. You know, this kind of thing. Tetzel says, but you got to buy it right now. So they did the transaction. The guy bought the indulgence. Tetzel packed his stuff up. He left town. When he got on the outskirts of town, guess who met him? This same guy who beat him up and stole his cash. When Tetzel asked him, what are you doing? He said, this is the sin I had in mind. Genius, isn't it? So Tetzel's selling these things. And um, people from this parish, from this church, in a town in Germany called, we would read it as Wittenberg. It was called Wittenberg. People from Wittenberg went, went kind of into the area nearby and heard Tetzel, and they bought these things. And they came back, and they're telling people about it. This is great. Look, our sins are forgiven. Look, we got our family members out of purgatory. They're excited about it. And there was a young monk in that town who heard about this. And he said, this isn't right. See, this monk, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this here in just a moment, but this monk had begun to read scripture for himself. And when he read scripture for himself, what he saw there was that this was not right. This was not true. This is not what scripture says. And he realized that these people had not only been ripped off, but they were being misled. See, he had read the scriptures for himself, which the people were completely unfamiliar with. And he knew what the Bible actually said, that their money did not buy anyone out of purgatory that their giving did not purchase their forgiveness or their salvation, that they were buying into a lie. And all the while, they were actually still heaping up God's wrath upon themselves. And so he knew this was wrong. And he decided that there was something that he needed to do, that he had to speak out about this. He had to speak out about the authority of the popes that was in contradiction to the word of God. He had to speak out against the corruption of the priests against the way that the, the church kept people from reading God's word and experiencing his grace. Ultimately, he had to speak out against this practice of selling indulgences. So in line with the communication of the time, he, he didn't have the internet. He didn't, he didn't have the radio. What he had to do was he, he wrote up the challenges that he had to this. He, he wrote them up in these, these little statements that were called theses. And he took 95 of them, 95 theses, and he wrote them out because he wanted to get it out there publicly. He wanted people to discuss it. He wanted to stir up some debate. And he took those 95 theses and he went to the church in that town, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he took those theses, and this is what you would have done if you wanted to kind of stir up some debate. And he took them and he nailed them to the door of that church on October 31st, 1517. Tuesday, it'll be 500 years ago. That, that young German monk that with those pages nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg started what we refer to in, 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 in genuine realness, what we call the Protestant Reformation. Let me show you a picture of him. His name was Martin Luther, not him. <laughs> I read about one guy who told that story about the, the Wittenberg door, and a lady in the audience raised her hand and, and said, now, did he do that? Thing where he nailed it to the door before or after his I have a dream speech. <laughs> Look, I, you need to know this, that the great reformer of our day was named after the great reformer of 500 years ago. This is Martin Luther. 
And what he did on that day in Germany sparked something that God has used to change not just the history of the church, but the history of the world. Go back to Jan Hus for a minute. Do you remember what he said? Hus said, you can roast the goose, but 100 years from now, you will not be able to stop the swan from singing. 102 years after Hus's martyrdom in 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther became the swan. And on the 500th anniversary of the launching of the Reformation, I want to take some time and talk about it this morning. And you might say, why? It's ancient history, Chad. Why does this even matter? I don't really care. Here's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that we don't know our history as a church. Not just Calvary's history, not just American history, but where do we come from? That's important for us to know. That's why we talk about the Reformation today. Here's why. Track with me for just a moment. If you do not know where you come from, you may end up going somewhere you should not. If you don't know where you come from, if you don't know what you're all about, you're going to find yourself in the wrong place. This was Luther's challenge, right? They didn't read the Bible. They didn't know what the Bible was about. So it was taking them places they did not want to go. You not only need to know where you come from, but, but it's about your identity. If you don't know who you are, you may become something you do not want to be. And this is really significant. When we fail to recognize who we are as a Christian church, we will stray from those things. Ultimately, here's why. If you do not know what truth you believe, you will believe something that is not true. Think to you on that for just a minute. If you don't know what truth you believe, then you're going to start to believe something that is not true. And look, the same things are happening today. The scriptures are questioned. The church is losing relevance. People are believing things that they've heard from other folks just because they think they're true, but they're not. We call this series Under Pressure. And just know this, if you don't know who you are when you're under pressure, those are the moments when you find yourself doing something that you regret later. Isn't that true? Now look, we're in a series in the book of Acts. And one of the reasons why Acts is so important is because it takes us back to our history as a church and what, what we've done today is I wanted to take time to talk about this historical significance of the Reformation. We were supposed to be in Acts chapter 6. Here's what we're going to do. This Wednesday night is, is what's typically our missions connect. So we kind of push the pause button, take a break from our, our typical wow classes on Wednesday nights. And we, and we meet in here at 7 o'clock and we do kind of a, a corporate kind of Bible study. Oftentimes we hear from a missionary. And what's so important is we spend time in prayer. Well, this Wednesday night we're going to go back to Acts 6 and we're going to talk about um, what I think personally is one of the absolute most important passages of scripture in the book of Acts. It was a make it or break it moment for the church. And if you are trying to make a decision about something important in your life, if you're, if you're challenged with something, if you're trying to find God's will, can I just encourage you? I think this Wednesday night is really important. We're gonna dig into this passage. Then we're gonna spend some time in prayer and worship at the end, especially if you're in a, in a personal moment where you're feeling pressure and uncertainty. Don't miss Wednesday night. I think that's gonna be really important. But I felt led that we need to talk about the Reformation today, and here's why. Some of you would go, that's cool, but it's not my history. That history doesn't apply to me. And some of you if, you, if you've grown up here at Calvary or you're familiar with who we are as a church, then you may know we refer to ourselves as a Pentecostal church. And we've talked about this as we've gone through the book of Acts. But don't miss this. If you trace our history back as a Pentecostal church, a Pentecostal is a Protestant. And so then that takes us back to the Reformation. This, this is our history. This is where we come from. 
Now, a couple things, just, just so you know, whenever you start talking about some of these, these figures in history, know that we're not Lutheran. We're not, we're not Calvinist. We're, we're talking about the fact that we're Protestant. And whenever you talk about this, there's certain people who start rubbing their hands together and go, oh, we're going to fight about theology. Right? They're looking for a theological debate. Let's talk about Calvinism and Arminianism. And that's for another time. And can I just be frankly honest with you? If you want to have that debate, that's probably with another guy. I don't want to have it with you. I don't care who you are. I'm just not interested. And also, this isn't an anti-Catholic statement or protest. Some people will take it in that way. I'm not bashing any group today. This is a historical reflection on a corrupt church of the 15th and 16th centuries and what we can learn about that today. Know this. I realize the reformers were not perfect people. If you notice, we live in a society that anytime somebody does something bad to be politically correct, we have to throw out what they did good. Have you noticed this? And, and these people weren't perfect. Not everything that came out of this season of history was great. There was disunity. There was war. There were was, there was stories of, of things that were wrong. Luther himself, his life did not necessarily end as well as maybe it could have or should have. But don't miss this core truth. Through the Reformation, God allowed the gospel to once again bring life change, and the world has never been the same. So you may ask the question, like, well, why do I care? Well, here's the reason why, that out of the Reformation came scriptural teachings from scripture that the reformers brought back to light that for centuries had kind of been hidden and not taught and literally been kept away from people and these truths came back. We refer in, in theological circles to these things as the five solas is what we call them. That word sola in Latin means only. It means it's the only thing. Today, we're going to look at the five solas. These are essential Reformation teachings of the gospel. And, and I'm watching this because as soon as I use the words history and theology in a statement together, some of you just checked out. Like you're already three scrolls into Facebook. Watch track with me here, okay? Because I think this is critically important for us and understand what we're looking at. We're going to look at these kind of five truths that came out of the Reformation. The first one, the first what theologians refer to as a sola is this. Number one, it's what we would call sola scriptura or, or what it means is scripture alone. Scripture alone. Rewind this thing 500 years. Why was this important? Because they didn't know what scripture said. They were just believing the words that they were taught. It was the word of the Pope or of the corrupt church. People didn't know what the Bible said. They failed to do what it taught. They followed teaching that they were told was right, but it lacked real authority. And in doing that, they missed out on the power of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Look at these words here. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you hear that? Does that ring true with anybody? It says that it is God-breathed. So easy. It's God-breathed, right? That when you open God's word, his, his word is alive. It speaks to us. I mean, there's something powerful about when you, when you take time in God's word and you say, Holy Spirit, speak to me by your word. When you have the Bible open in your lap, when, when you allow his scripture to speak to you, it's not just another book. It's literally God's life coming. Every word of the scriptures is inspired. It comes to us from God. And why that's so important 
is because God's word is the ultimate source of truth. Now, it's not the only place that you're going to find truth, but if the truth you find does not line up with God's word, then it is not God's best. Does that make sense? God's word, scripture only, is the ultimate source of truth. And one of the major reasons that this became a cry of the reformers was this. They didn't have scripture. Like, like the priests may have been taught to read it, and they would read it in Latin. Some of the, the very educated would go back and read it in, in the Greek. But as they would read the Greek New Testament, as they would read the Latin scriptures, they realized people need to read this. People need to know this. People need to hear these things and understand these things. And there was no way for there to hear them for themselves. And so they would begin to try in, in the languages that people spoke to translate the scriptures so people would read them. But the rulers didn't like this. Do you know why the church leaders didn't like it? Because if people read the scriptures, then they would know what the scripture said. And if they knew what the scripture said, then they would challenge their authority. And if their authority got challenged, then they might lose power. And if they lost power, sir, are you tracking with me? And so they fought against this. One of the people that was challenged by this was a gentleman named William Tyndale. Tyndale was from England. And when he began to teach and talk about the need for people to have the scripture in their own language, he knew that they were coming after him. So he had to flee England and go to the continent of Europe and hide out there. And while he was there, he took the Greek New Testament and he translated it into what we refer to as the Tyndale Bible. And for the very first time, William Tyndale gave to us the scriptures in a language that those who speak English can understand. Anybody speak English here? Look, I, I have the Bible on my phone. I have the Bible on my tablet. I have, I, I have at least 20 Bibles in my possession to the point that sometimes it can just become another book. Realize this. For you to have that English Bible, there were people who lost their lives. That helps you to see it in a different light, doesn't it? Those scriptures have incredible value not just historically, but spiritually, which is why the reformers fought for this idea. Sola Scriptura, or what we would refer to as Scripture alone, which takes us then to the second sola that we would talk about. What's the, what's the second only that we would talk about? Here's number two. It's what in Latin was called Solus Christus, or Christ alone. Solus Christus. Or Christ alone. Here's, here's the big deal. If, if you're living in the 1500s and you need to be forgiven of sin, how do you do it? Well, you got to go to the priest. And somehow, whether it's through confession or penance or you buy an indulgence, somehow you have to go to somebody else to help you find that. You need a mediator. You need a middleman. But the truth is, that's not biblical. Look at this. When you look at Scripture, you find this. This is one of the greatest teachings of the New Testament. Christ is our mediator. We don't need somebody, a middleman, to get us to Christ. Christ is our mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. The power of that passage is this. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. We have direct access to God. Now, if, that's, if you have a hard time understanding why that's a big deal, think about this for me. Have you ever had to call someplace up 
to try to get a credit or return something, or maybe you look at a bill and you see that something's not right and you have to call them up and you call someplace up and you start to talk to somebody and you quickly realize the person you're talking to does not have a clue. Ever had that happen? Do you know what I'm talking about? We had a guy in first service, he was like, yes, he was like bitter about it. Like I'm, I'm worried for his soul. You know, it's like, and so, so he's mad. And, and you call and you get talking to this person and you get a little while into the call and you just realize this is going nowhere. And what do you say? Is there somebody else I can talk to, right? Do you have a supervisor? Do you have a boss? Does anybody have a brain? Like you ask that question. If you say that, don't tell them what church you go to. So, so this is happening, right? You talk to them and then you get the next person. They might be slightly less clueless and then you have to ask again. And you keep having to go through these, these intermediaries, a middleman, a, a mediator, and it's just frustrating, sometimes to the very point that you just give up and say, look, it's not worth it to get to that right person. Wouldn't it be great if you could just pick up the phone and know you were going to get right to the person who could do something about it, right? And this is, this is who Jesus is. See, there's no way for us to be right between us and God. What we needed was a mediator, not a middleman, not somebody who would be in between and while these people were going to priests and trying to have priests do something that actually did not work, all the while, Scripture said, you can get right to God through Jesus Christ. See, this is the beauty of this. Salvation is found in Christ alone. And let me tell you, when you feel alone, remember this, you're not alone. That he came to be God with us. You don't need a middleman. You don't need somebody to get you to God. You can go boldly before the throne of grace, Scripture says, because of what Christ has done. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Solus Christus, which leads us to the third thing. How in the world is that even possible? Well, number three, it's what theologians would refer to as sola gratia. Sola gratia, or the idea of grace alone. Everything that we have comes from God's grace. If you look at this, if you think about it, and this is especially true with our salvation. What's salvation? It's, it's knowing that we're right with God, that our sins have been forgiven, that we have hope and purpose, that we do not have to fear death, that we have the promise of heaven. And just before I dig into this, some of you, let me encourage you with this, this is the moment where you're supposed to dial in. This is the whole reason you're sitting in this room or you're in auditorium too, or you're watching online somewhere, the whole reason that God wants you to hear this today is because in your heart, you know something's missing. You know that something's not right between you and God. And no matter how much you've been to church, or no matter how much you've heard, or no matter what you thought you believed, you know that something's not right. This was the nagging, aching thing that drove the reformers that we talk about. And it's important that you see this, you will never be able to earn a right relationship with God. You will never deserve your salvation. Salvation is available because of God's grace. Grace alone. Highlight, underline, circle that word grace because it comes in so many times. It comes in in the times when we're frustrated. It comes in in the times when we feel like we have no value. It comes in in the times when we feel like we can't do anything right. It comes in in the times when we question our identity, and if we're not sure of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us, and we don't realize that it's not because of who we are, but because of God's grace, we will make bad decisions based on a misunderstanding of our identity. Does that make sense? Guy was in the news a couple of weeks ago. His name's Cleveland Willis. 
Cleveland lives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Cleveland walked into a KFC. He was wearing all black clothes. He had on a black ski mask. He pulled out a gun. He pointed it at the people on the other side of the counter and said, give me all the money. So they did, about $612, bundled it up, gave it to him. But in the midst of it, a couple of the people behind the counter felt a little awkward about the whole thing. And finally, one of the guys looks up at the dude holding the gun, and he says, Cleveland, is that you? To which Cleveland responds, no, it's not me. Do you see why that was a bad thing to say? Okay. And then when he left, he walked out and got into this silver Nissan Altima that all of them recognized because that was the same car he used to drive when he worked there. He had this identity issue, didn't he? He didn't understand who he was. He was trying to hide something about his past. He was trying all these things, and it caused him to make a really bad decision, and you do the same thing when you wrestle too much with who you are and who you try to be and fail to realize that God's salvation comes to you based simply on grace alone. Know this. We receive salvation not because of who we are, but because of who God is. It's based on his grace, to which you go, Cool. If that's what God's word says, and that Jesus is the one who's the mediator, and his grace helps me to be right, how do I get that? How do I find that grace? You say, I don't have to work for it. You say, I'll never be able to earn it. Where does it come from? Here's the fourth sola, number four, sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone. When Martin Luther was a young man, before he nailed those 95 theses to the wall or to the door of the castle church. He read Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And it said, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. And this was the part Luther said that just jumped off the page at him. The righteous will live by faith, not you will be made righteous by your works. Not you are righteous because of your heritage or what you've done. He says your righteousness will come from faith. This was a pretty big deal because Luther had tried really hard to be somebody. Let me read to you what he wrote. He says, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Luther says, the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. And this, this was the status of things in the Catholic Church at that time. There was a, no confidence of a place in heaven. And if you can only enter heaven because you become personally worthy of it, then of course no one can. By that line of reasoning, I can only have as much confidence in heaven as I have confidence in my own sinlessness. Raise your hand if you're sinless here today. If you are, you're lying and that's a sin. <laughs> and if we're sinless, we're good. If we're not, that's bad. That means things can't be right between us and God. And there's no way to make it right. 
That's exactly why when Luther was a young man, before he became a monk, he was studying law. He was going to be a lawyer. And he was walking one day, and as he walked, a storm came up, and a, and, a, and a bolt of lightning struck near him, knocked him to the ground. And when he did, he screamed out, if you'll save me, I'll become a monk. And he did. Why was he so scared in that moment? Because he didn't know what would happen to him if he died. He had no certainty of anything outside of his own sinfulness before God. And then when he discovered that, that the way we're saved is not because of who we are or what we've done, it's God's grace that comes to us when we put our faith in him, this is what he wrote. Watch this. He says, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, anybody ever had the devil throw your sin up to you? You ever been alone by yourself and think about what you've done, who you've been, how you've treated others? The devil just sits there and smiles. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, Luther says, we ought to speak this way. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Why? Because I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Which leads us then to number five. Man, we could park here for a long time. Number five is what we call soli deo gloria, or glory to God alone. That our lives are lived with one purpose. Why were we created? We were created to bring God glory, and life only finds purpose when lived for God's glory. If we try to live for ourselves, if we try to live for others, if we try to live for stuff, you ever had a day where you tried to do all this stuff and at the end of the day, you realize you got nothing done? Some of you are like, that was yesterday. Yeah, right? <laughs> and you say, man, I wasted this day. I binge watched that, but I wasted this day. What have you got to the end of it all? And you said I wasted my life? Look, if you live your life for anything outside of God's truth and God's glory, Scripture says you've wasted your life. I mean, we could, we could talk about an awful lot. We've only scratched the, the surface, the very beginning of the story of Luther's life. Let me tell you one more story about Martin Luther. It, it took place at, at, a, at a meeting that's referred to as the, the Deet of Worms. If you look at it, it looks like it says the diet of worms. That's what it looks like when you see it. If you just read it anglicized in kind of English. And I think that sounds like a great weight loss program, doesn't it? <laughs> the diet of worms. Pronounced the deet of worms. It was a place where they called Luther there. And it was basically the same thing that Hoos encountered. Where they said, look, you got a decision to make, buddy. Either you take back all that you said. Or we're going to excommunicate you. And that excommunication is, is certainly going to lead to some kind of punishment. It's certainly going to lead to an end to you. Luther's story is, is fascinating. I, I won't tell you much more. But let me, let me read to you from this book. This is a book called Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther. It, it's uh, historically kind of one of the authoritative biographies on Luther's life. And it was at this meeting, they said, Luther, do you stand by what you've written? Do you stand by what you've said? Here's your chance to recant. 
And they gave him time to think about it. And here's what he came to them the next day. And he concluded his comments by saying this. Unless I am convicted by scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then the earliest printed versions of his words add this. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Those, those three words have kind of become Luther's legacy for many. It's the title of this book. He said, here I stand. Why talk about history? Because it's going to affect your future. And there's going to be a time when you come under pressure. I don't know what kind of pressure. Pressure from the culture, pressure in your home, pressure on the job, pressure from just situations of life or disappointment. And you're going to need to be reminded that God's word is true and that Christ is right there with you. Not because you deserve him to be, not because you've earned it, but because of God's grace through faith, you can know his presence in your life. And when you face those moments of pressure, you can choose to live for his glory and you can say, here I stand. That this story of perseverance and faithfulness and courage, when you face your own challenges, you'll be willing to take that stand that's why this history is so important because I want to challenge you by knowing what you believe, then you can take that moment of faithful presence before God and others and make that statement, here I stand. A year before Ron and I got married, I, was, I, I spent the summer working as a custodian in a high school, Lordstown High School, Lordstown, Ohio, on the other side of the state. And... Um, at the end of that school year, they had gone through and purged a bunch of books out of their library. They were like cleaning out to make room and they had the books just kind of laying around. They're like, hey, if anybody wants them, you can take some. So I was looking at the books and I came to this one. Here I stand, a life of Martin Luther. And I said, Martin Luther, I think he's important. I wonder if this has his I have a dream speech in it. Like that's, you know, you're kind of. And so I picked up this book, never read it, had it on my shelf, had it and stuff. Fast forward a couple of years, Ron and I are married. We're living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and some of this is, is like none of your business, but we had just like a, a double bed. And this friend of ours called us up, and he says, I, I know somebody that's getting rid of a queen-size bed. Could you use a, a queen-size bed? And we're like, yeah, that'd be great. So he brings it over, and we get this kind of secondhand bed, and we get it all set up, and we get the frame together. And somewhere in the process of things, if you're looking there, like standing there, like looking at the bed, the, the front right foot was like missing on the bed. And so it was like, you know, it wasn't stable. It had no firm foundation. We were like, we got to put something under there. So we start looking around. We're looking at the size, and we need something to do it. And I said, Rhonda, I think what might work. And so I grabbed my copy of Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther. This is a true story. And I took it. You can see right here, there's a mark right there where the leg of that bed sat on that book through four moves, two different places in Milwaukee, two different places in Toledo. There was Martin Luther. There my bed stood, right there. And until we, got, until we got a new bed, there he was. And I didn't even realize for years that the foundation of my life was built on the story of Martin Luther. And you probably didn't either. So that's why we told you the story today.
because there's going to come a moment in your life where you're going to need to know what you believe. You're going to need to be able to go, here I stand. And in that moment, what you know about the past is going to encourage you in the future to persevere, to have courage, to trust God. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, if you would, please. Roger's going to lead us in a song that sings about what we believe. Before we sing it, would you just do this? If you're here and, and maybe you're in a pressure situation even right now where you have to say, God, this is your word that I stand on. This is your truth that I stand on. Would you just lift your hands to the Lord? Maybe God's speaking to your heart right now. And you know, this, this is where I've got to stand. And then as we sing these words, you would make them a prayer of affirmation. Even right now, would you just thank God? And affirm, God, this is where I stand. I stand on the promise of who you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. We put our trust in you. Here we stand. We put our confidence in you. Thank you. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. Or I believe in the name of Jesus. of us, your Holy Spirit has spoken a timely word to us, that by your scripture, through what Jesus did for us, by God's grace, through faith, we can live our lives for your glory, and in those moments of pressure, we can affirm, here I stand, I can do no other. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us, Lord, would you send us out with your special favor, with your wonderful peace? We ask this in Jesus' name.